Hello, I'm here to talk today about arguments from silence, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What makes an argument from silence better or worse? In the taxonomy I'm using today, I'm going to treat the ugly as even worse than bad. So they're the really bad, just so you understand. It may surprise you at the outset to know that I'm going to say there are some things that could be considered arguments from silence that are actually good. That is to say they have significant force. Here's a way to see the difference. Suppose that I look around this small room that I'm in, I look behind the, the curtain background behind me, and uh, after a brief look, I say, I do not see an elephant in this room. This is a strong argument that there is not an elephant in this room. That would be true. Because even a baby elephant would be large in this room. There wouldn't be a place where an elephant could hide. But suppose I take a similar look around and I say, there isn't a spider in this room. And I base that on my not having seen a spider. When I look around, I don't see a spider in this room. This is a strong argument. Suppose I were to say that there isn't a spider in this room. That would be false because there are plenty of places for a spider to hide and there's kind of a dark colored carpet. The spider wouldn't show up. Um, there are many books and so forth in this room, and a spider is small. This has nothing to do with the prior probability that a spider is in this room, even if I said a scorpion, uh, which is not a kind of bug found in uh, Michigan, it would still be a bad argument to say that there isn't a scorpion in this room, probably because I look around and I don't see one. And it would be even worse if someone I knew said, I just saw a spider go into that room. And I said, oh, well, I don't see one, so probably you're wrong. There isn't a spider in this room. There what I'm doing is I'm taking the argument from my not seeing the spider and I'm setting it against definite testimony that someone saw a spider come into this room. Now, as you can see from those homely intuitive examples, what makes the difference is how strongly you would expect the evidence to be there if the claim were true. How strongly would I expect to see an elephant in this room if there were an elephant in this room? How strongly would I expect to see a spider in this room when I glance around if there were a spider in this room? What this means is that you could have um, an argument from silence that would have far, far less weight than the converse of receiving the evidence would have in favor of it. If I actually I have a white desk in front of me here, if I actually saw a spider there, that would be very strong evidence that there is a spider. But my not seeing a spider on the desk is, is trivially insignificant evidence that there is no spider in this room. Okay, so there's an asymmetry there. My husband, Tim McGrew, has written an article, which I will be depending on today to some extent on arguments from silence uh, and giving them a Bayesian treatment. Unfortunately, I don't think the full text of that argument is available online, but I will link to the abstract. Um, 
and I won't even be able to get into all of the great things that he has to say here, uh, and, but hopefully I'll be able to apply them to New Testament studies in a way that his article does not do. In history, it turns out that we're really bad at estimating intuitively how probable it is that some historical document would mention an event if it really happened. And this is a crucial number, and that we would still have that any document that did mention it. And these are crucial considerations if we are going to try to use an argument from silence in a historical context. Tim separates out three different things. First of all, if this event had happened, what's the probability that the author in question would know of it? Second, if the event had happened and he did know of it, what's the probability that he would mention it in, in a document, that he would write it down? And third, if he did know of it and did write it down, if it were true and he did know of it and he did write it down, what's the probability that we would still have that document, that that document would have survived? And these are all separate questions. So the, the argument from silence well, we don't have any document that mentions this, or this document doesn't mention it, could fail at multiple points. And that's got to be kept, into, kept in view as we consider the argument from silence in history. What Tim also tries to do is to calibrate. That is to say, look at some actual events, look at some documents that we might think mention them, and find whether those documents do mention them even though we have, say, other documents or other evidence that makes it clear that those events really happened. So let me give a couple of illustrations. This one's kind of cool. There's a town called Bergen, Norway, and archaeologists have dug up very strong evidence of a large fire, a, a huge fire in Bergen, Norway, sometime between 1225 and 1230 AD. Now we also have annals, written histories about Bergen, Norway during that time that even mentioned some fires. But these annals don't document the large fire that archeologists can tell must have happened between about 1225 and 1230. It's a, it's a straightforward case of a conflict between any argument from silence you might try to make from the annals and the archaeological evidence. And I think quite rightly, historians have concluded that the archaeological evidence takes precedence over the silence of the annals. So the analysts apparently weren't recording all the fires. That evidently wasn't their goal. Another one that I like to mention is that the memoirs of um, Ulysses S. Grant never mention Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, though you might think surely Grant would mention the Emancipation Proclamation. Another one that Tim talks about concerns the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79. We have two letters from uh, Pliny the Younger to the historian Tacitus about the eruption of Vesuvius. Pliny's uncle, 
Pliny the Elder, actually perished in the eruption of Vesuvius. So it was of interest to him. He writes about it, but in neither of these letters does he mention the destruction of Pompeii, which was a pretty populous city, or of the somewhat less populated Herculaneum. But we have, of course, dug up Pompeii and Herculaneum. We know that they were destroyed by that eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Now, these are just a few examples. I could give more. What they tell us is that we need to be a lot more cautious about saying, oh, this document would mention this if it really happened. There's no mention of this. Therefore, it probably really didn't happen, or this is at least very strong evidence that it didn't happen. And we need to be even more careful about setting that against testimony so that when we do have a document that does mention it, we don't say, oh, but this other document is silent. This is a, uh, that kind of argument is a example of something that was just brought up in an interview that Tim and I did, a presentation that we did recently, where he said that skeptics of Christianity have a tendency to say, aside from all the evidence we have, what evidence do we have? And I like that way of putting it. So, you know, we have this and we have this and we have this. But what, why don't we have this other evidence over here? And that's completely illicit. You, you can always think of more evidence that you could have for something. But that doesn't justify you in ignoring the evidence that you do have for that proposition. So that makes a transition here to the New Testament, the Gospels, biblical studies, and so forth. Skeptics are extremely fond of the argument from silence. You'll hear it over and over and over again. Why, uh, you know, sort of a crude example is, why don't non-Christian sources talk more about Jesus' miracles? Well, of course, if a non-Christian believed in the miracles, he probably would be more likely to become a Christian. So again, this is this, aside from the evidence we have, what evidence do we have type of thing. But moreover, skeptics tend not to realize that this was not the information age we did not have, and we do not have, access to some kind of um, daily newspaper from Galilee telling about extraordinary events taking place in Galilee, or even Jerusalem for that matter. Oh, there's extraordinary buzz surrounding this preacher who is believed to have been a miracle worker and believed to have opened the eyes of a blind man. We don't have that. In our information-saturated society, we're so used to having a lot of different reports of anything unusual that happens that we assume that uh, we have reports like that uh, on a you know moment-to-moment -moment basis from that time period. You'll also get arguments from silence from skeptics about, um, say, the earthquake at the time of Jesus' death. Now, that was a, an unstable area. I mean, there could have been an earthquake just in natural terms, and there is evidence of instability around that time, but we can't pin down or have a, you know, specific skeptical written source saying there was an earthquake upon the occasion of the death of Jesus. Again, very weak argument from silence against there being an earthquake. Bart Ehrman is uh, quite strong on the argument from silence. He presses it against the deity claims in the Gospel of John. He insists that if Jesus had really said before Abraham was, I am, the synoptic gospels would record it. So he tries to set the gospels against one another. But this assumes that the synoptic gospels had as a goal to say the most uh, strong things that they could think of to defend the deity of Jesus. 
it ain't necessarily so. Moreover, the selection of material in the Synoptic Gospels is probably not independent. I think the reportage is sometimes independent. So, for example, Matthew may have had access to ad additional facts, but their decision about what to report is, I think, more intertwined in some sort of uh, literary way. So the fact that they don't tell something isn't even an independent decision on the part of each separate synoptic gospel author. Again, we've got these three things. Would the person have known of it? If he did know of it, would he have reported it? And if he did report it, would it survive? We can examine this with respect to the guard at the tomb story, against which Skeptics often will use an argument from silence, pretty much anything that's just found in one document. But in this case, it's only found in Matthew, and it's considered to have, you know, apologetic value, so they zero in on it. I believe that the ending of Mark is incomplete, that we've lost the ending of Mark, so we don't even know that Mark didn't write about the guard at the tomb, and we certainly don't know that he didn't write about appearances of Jesus. In fact, it seems quite likely that he did, so please do not accept any statement. Mark doesn't mention any appearances of Jesus as if we have a complete Mark and he and there aren't any appearances of Jesus in it. So this is that question of whether something would have survived. Um, sometimes this is a little bit hidden. So as uh, a person may say, the uh, ministry of Jesus in the Synaptic Gospels is, is, includes only one Passover. As if the Synaptic Gospels said the ministry of Jesus includes only one Passover. Here's another thing to be careful about. There's a difference between a document attests that something didn't happen and a document does not attest that something did happen. Crucial difference. The Synaptic Gospels do not attest that there was only one Passover in Jesus' ministry. They do not attest that there was no guard at the tomb. They do not attest that Jesus didn't say before Abraham was I am. They simply do do not attest that it did happen. That is to say, they are simply silent on whether it did happen. Must distinguish between that. Okay? This is the difference you might say between my saying, um, I've looked around and I don't see a um, spider in this room, and someone saying, I have come in and I have used... Um, you know, pest control, and I have, and I just did this, and I just did this a few minutes ago, and I've eradicated every spider. I have a spider sensor, a special spider sensor right here, you know, like, like Doctor Who's sonic screwdriver or something, and I'm going to shine it around the entire room, and it's going to tell me if there's, it's got a special spider sensor on it. It's going to tell me if there's any spider anywhere in this room, etc. You know, that kind of thing, okay? No. That's not what we have in the Gospels when they simply don't mention the guard at the tomb story. Okay, now I want to talk about a slightly more subtle use of the argument from silence. We've already talked about a tacit use of it where a person will just confidently declare there is no such and such in this Gospel as if the Gospel 
you know, definitely a test that it didn't happen. But here's another more subtle tacit use. This is more likely to happen, I would say, with a, um, a Christian scholar who may not even realize that he's succumbing to an argument from silence. You'll find that a incident that's recorded only in one gospel will tend to be singled out, even if there's nothing suspicious about it. An example I use a lot here is John the Baptist saying, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is recorded only in John. In fact, the whole conversation in which it occurs is recorded only in John. The synoptic gospels, Mark, for example, the voice of the narrator applies that verse, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord to John the Baptist. Now, I would say these are actually mutually corroborating because if Peter or Mark had heard that, that, that John himself applied that verse to himself, it would have been in their heads. Maybe they wouldn't have even remembered why as associated with him, so they would be more likely to mention it even in the voice of the narrator. Certainly the mention in the voice of the narrator is no disconfirmation that John the Baptist applied it to himself. So it's all it is is a difference based on silence, that the synoptic gospels don't record that conversation and hence don't record John the Baptist saying it. Nonetheless, you will see uh, a scholar writing about differences in the Gospels, putting a question mark over that, saying, well, it's possible John the Baptist did do this. He may have, he may have said this, but it's a difference from the synoptics and it's impossible to know. Okay, it's impossible to say whether he did this. Now that's putting a question mark over it. Why? I call this an utterly unforced error. And utterly unforced errors are a good place to look for unspoken, perhaps even unconscious, arguments from silence. Because why is it being singled out? Because it's not in the synoptics. Okay, Sim similarly, um, we find in only Luke, when he tells the story of the man with the withered hand, that story is told elsewhere, but when he tells it, he's the only one to include which hand it was. I believe it's the man's right hand that was withered. Now that's a detail of the miracle. It's not in itself a miraculous detail that his right hand was withered. I've seen a uh, eminent Christian gospel scholar who has no doubt about the miracle itself suggest that that detail might have been added by Luke just without evidence as an embellishment. And why? You know, why focus on that? I suggest that the reason for focusing on it and just picking it out as something, you know, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, maybe Luke added it, is because it's only found in Luke. But this is an unspoken and perhaps unconscious argument from silence that it's not found in the other Gospels. My previous video talked about a misuse of the argument from multiple attestation where a scholar will give away the store, as it were, on the individual reliability of the Gospels, suggest quite a lot of dependence between them um, in various cases, but then try to salvage a given fact by saying that it's multiply attested. That scholar's own methods 
would encourage us to say, well, maybe it's not really multiply independently attested. Maybe the it was just a tradition, and that tradition could have already been embellished for all we know. One tradition, which is only one source, which the uh, different gospels then embellished in different ways. And independence of embellishing imagination is not factual independence. It's the wrong kind of independence. Um, and yet I suggested that uh, scholars may think that they can give up quite a bit as far as uh, our confidence that the gospel authors didn't change things, didn't make things up, and then count on multiple attestation to come in like a knight on the white horse and save them. I would say that this uh, unconscious use of an argument from silence is sort of the flip side to that mistaken use of multiple attestation. Why do I say that? I say that because when you start becoming very heavily reliant on multiple attestation, it's easy to slip over into using it as a negative criterion. That is to say, it's easy to feel like oh, we don't have multiple attestation. This is only found in one gospel. Therefore, it's insecure or it's open to question or it's something that historians cannot know. And that's what's known as a negative use of a criterion. Uh, it, it's maybe, you know, if you don't say it absolutely didn't happen, it's a milder negative use, but it is still a kind of negative use to say, well, this is only found in Matthew, or this is only found in John. So, you know, maybe it was something that he invented. Maybe it was an adaptation or a transferal or whatever, and it's impossible to know. Psychologically, if you have gotten used to giving stuff up, making concessions, even arguing for a certain view of the, of the documents that they are changing things, then salvaging facts by the use of multiple attestation, you're more likely, when there isn't multiple attestation, to question something. That makes sense. It makes sense psychologically. For that matter, it makes sense probabilistically as well, because the individual reliability has been functionally undermined even if the scholar says no, even if he protests, no, I'm not undermining individual reliability. When functionally you find him questioning something and you look around in the vicinity and you can't find any other reason for questioning that other than that it's found only in that one document, it's a sign that that one document is not being considered very reliable. I think you can see that in common sense terms. What I've tried to do here is to prepare you to think critically and rigorously about whether arguments from silence are good, bad, or ugly, whether they're used by skeptics who are very fond of them, or by uh, liberal New Testament scholars, or by even more conservative New Testament scholars. Learn to ask questions. Would the person have known of this? If the person did know of this, am I sure that he would have mentioned that? Should I calibrate on that? And thirdly, if he had mentioned it, would that have survived and would we have that evidence? In that way, we can make common sense rigorous, which is what we're trying to do here at the Lydia McGrew YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Please be sure to like and subscribe, hit that bell for notifications, 
and come back next time.